Well, thank you all for coming to this year's uh, Middle Grades Book Buzz. I'm Heather Van Dyke from Kalamazoo Christian Middle School, and my sidekick is Megan Van Lenty. She also teaches at Kalamazoo Christian Middle School. Um, we're just going to jump right into this. Our first book is Gary Schmidt's latest story. It's Pay Attention, Carter Jones. Um, it starts out in very typical Gary Schmidt fashion, where there, you're just dropped down into the middle of the situation, which is the first day of school. The Jeep won't start. It's pouring down with rain. Um, Carter's youngest sister only wears yellow socks, and she can't find one of them, and the dog is puking because he's excited. It's a dachshund. That's what he does when he gets excited. And into this melee, there's this knock on the door. Carter runs over there, and he opens it up, and there's this perfectly dressed butler. You know, like, if you've ever read, like, the Jeeves and Wooster thing, or, you know, you picture the guy with the bowler hat, that's the person that shows up at the door. And he comes in, and within 15 minutes, everything is calm, and order is restored, and Carter is dropped off at school with the injunction to pay attention and remember who you are. Well, as the book progresses, you start to realize why everything is so chaotic at home. Mom is at home holding down the fort and dad is on deployment. But as the story continues to progress, in typical Gary Schmidt fashion, he just drops little hints. I love the way that it's always these oblique little angles and if you read, if you slow down and read, you, you just pick up. I mean, as an adult, you pick them up faster. But kids pick them up and you all of a sudden you're like, something's wrong here. And you realize that the dad has just informed the mom that he's leaving her. And that's why everything is chaotic. So, I love it. The librarian at my school was not so much sold on it because his hook into Carter's life is cricket. So if you have absolutely no knowledge of cricket, it's a little harder to get into. I mean, he does a great job of explaining things. But if you've never heard of cricket, it's a little harder to get into. My dad came from England, so like I knew what a sticky wicket was. It's just one of those expressions that my dad used. It's like, you're not playing fair, you stuck the wicket on top. So that's, that's the only caveat. Otherwise, it's a fabulous book. The next one is one of my favorites this year. Okay, I'll admit, I'm going to say this is my favorite all year. <laughs> Lots of times. Um, I love this on a lot of different levels. The Last, Last Day of Summer by Lamar Giles. Oh, yeah, I gotta remember to do that. Thanks. Um, this is your quirky, adventure, weird, coming-of-age story. Uh, do, do we like girls or don't we like girls? Am I being closer to my cousin that I'm always best friends with, or are we starting to drift apart? And it takes place in a weird county where you never know what's gonna happen. You know, robots, you know, with death rays are part of what these two partners in the detective agency fight all the time. And you know what, their, their arch nemesis are the epic Ellisons, two girls, they're twins, ew, girls. <laughs> but one of the coolest things that I like is this isn't blonde-eyed, you know, blonde-eyed, blonde-eyed, blue-eyed, blonde-haired. I teach science and we've been doing genetics all week, so <laughs> forgive me. This is not Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. These are African-American kids. And they're having a fabulous adventure. It is so refreshing to see that anybody can have weird adventures. Boys, girls, in the North, in the South, and it's weird, and it's fun, and it's enjoyable. And it's also got some illustrations, which are really fun, and, and you get a picture of what the author was thinking with some of these crazy events that happen. All right, Megan's got the next one. All right, the next book is called White Rose. And this book I happened to pick up because I was at my niece's house, and it was sitting on the table. And I said, oh, is that a good book? And she said, it's amazing. And she's like a history person. So I stole it from her for a couple days um, and tried to get it back to her before it was due at the library. So it was a super quick read. Um, even though it looks kind of long, it's a novel in verse. And so it just, you, you can fly through it really quick. Um, and it's really um, a biography, which I think is kind of neat. And it's focused on the time World War II and people, kind of the, the young adult crowd in Germany who was fighting against Hitler. 
kind of in forming their subtle alliances and were kind of purposely causing problems but not necessarily being overt about it. You know, they were kind of leading the silent rebellion. Um, and they called their group the White Rose. And so it's her kind of getting involved and, and just like any, I don't know, somewhat heroine story, she doesn't necessarily choose it right away. It, she kind of falls into it. She's got a big brother who's involved and she wants to help and but he won't let her, so she starts doing it anyway. And they, you know, they kind of, and then there's little love involved in, you know, the relationship with one of the boys in the story. But it's very much like the 20-year-old girl perspective of, like, what she sees as unjust and how she's trying to help. So the author kind of got into her shoes, I guess, from that perspective. I thought for the most part it was all very appropriate that a middle schooler or high schooler could, especially upper middle schooler that knows something about World War II and Holocaust and things, could, could read and understand. There was one reference of like her going out drinking, um, like a mention of alcohol, but it wasn't embellished in some huge way. So I thought, she is 20 years old in the story, so it seemed appropriate in that context. It wasn't anything crazy, but it's good to know that's there. Um, but the, the tragic thing about the story is that in real life and in the story, um, they all got caught and they all got executed. And so that's how the story ends. Um, is, and there's a wrap-up by the author um, that their efforts from their eyes didn't make any change. <clears throat> yeah, all her resources. So in, in real life, the White Rose didn't actually solve the war, defeat Hitler, any of those things, but their work was recognized posthumously um, in that, you know, later on people saw that, and um, I think I'm sure it had impact at that time too, you know, but um, it was a really tragic ending. So it was a really, really, really good book. Now we go from tragedy to comedy. Um, I picked this up in our school library, and within the first page I was laughing out loud, and all my students are looking at me, because how can you put down a book where the opening sentence is, that night for dinner I had one jelly bean. <laughs> and that was not unusual for my family. The family's last name is Quirk. So starting right there, You've got the, all the elements for like, this is going to be, a, this has the potential to be a great read. Um, I've had several students come and ask for it. It's on hold already in the library. It's, I think it's going to be one of those books that is going to be just a hit all year long. Um, Ryan, short for Orion, because mom works at a planetarium. She also has OCD. Dad is a chemist for a jelly bean factory. And so, among other things, sometimes the family finds themselves having very serious dinnertime discussions about the flavor of jelly beans, such as roast chicken, a roast chicken jelly bean, which he thinks is way better than the last one Dad came up with, which was armpit. <laughs> so he's like, yeah, in our family, we do weird things. His older sister is a drama queen. She's always singing the latest songs from Hamilton, or, you know, she's got a snake. It's a boa. She loves the snake. His youngest sister is a walking dictionary. She's been like a finalist in spelling bees forever. And then there's Ryan stuck in the middle. Their grandfather, Papa Quirk, is a motorcycle riding, interesting character. Among other things that he gave his grandson for Christmas one year was a stuffed squirrel. Um, he has a couple large knives, bows and arrows, all of which were immediately confiscated from, by mom and put in the attic. So he's like, I don't even have a chance to be anything other than just boring old Ryan in the middle. Well, as they're sitting there analyzing the flavors of the latest jelly bean, they get a knock on the door, and there is a clown. The clown says, I'm really sorry about this, but this is what I'm hired to do. And he proceeds to sing them a singing telegram announcing their grandfather's death. At which point, you know, there's no way I cannot put this book down. I think I read it in two days. And it's actually a story about forgiveness and redemption. The father and the grandfather have not seen eye to eye for years. In fact, their relationship went bad right around the time that the grandmother passed away. And the grandfather developed a very serious drinking problem. The son assumed that you know his dad didn't care about him, that every time he went to the bar, he was rejecting his own son more and more. 
So when the family goes back to the town the father said he was never going to go back to, great aunt Gertie, the only remaining family member, is there in charge of the funeral. Not a funeral, a funeral. And she insists that this was part of the terms of Papa Quirk's will. And person after person in the town come up and say all of the great things that Papa Quirk has done for them. That he helped this family through a hard time, that he was always there at the local high school helping with students, that he helped a, another family where the dad was heading down the same path following an accident and was getting involved in drinking, and he, you know, helped him turn his life around. And the family, you know, the Cork family is sitting there looking at each other and going, this can't be about Papa Cork. And finally it's their turn to go up and pay respects, and they look in the coffin and there's nothing but a note. And then they get sent on a treasure quest. They have to find Grandpa's remains. It just keeps, you know, the weirdness just keeps going. But as it keeps going, it's that very weirdness that finally breaks through to the dad to realize that a lot of the ways he was interpreting events as a middle school and high school young man were not actually what was going on. But the father was too proud sometimes to tell his son that what he was really doing at the bar was cleaning up. That he was working extra hours. Now there had been a time when he, you know, drank himself to the bottom of the bottle every night. But the bartender realized that he was destroying his life and looked at him and said, what would your wife say? And that's when things started to change. So it is, and the, the, another great part about it is the end of the story isn't like everybody's all happy and stuff and, you know, they find the body and great, we're all good. Oh, he was cremated, so, you know, it's not that bad. Um, but the resolution takes another two chapters because it isn't just about the relationship of the father to the grandfather. It's also about Ryan's relationship with his sisters and with his parents. And instead of just stopping short, the author does take the time to explore how that's going to continue. It's really a, it's a great ending. It's funny, but it's incredibly serious at the same time. Oh, me too. Okay. I picked this one up just because, you know, anything that's a good play on words, like we've got the untouchables, now we've got the unteachables. Um, it starts with, uh, you have, every chapter is told by a different character in the story. And not every character actually gets a chapter. But this is, again, a story of redemption. Um, you have Elaine, who rhymes with pain. Um, Aldo Barnstorm, Ramen, and Kiani Rubani, oh, sorry, Kiana Rubani, who is moved there, and her slip accidentally gets moved on the first day of staying there, and she's stuck in the classroom with the unteachables, where they're merrily having a bonfire in the middle of the room and roasting marshmallows on pencils. Because this is the eighth grade. This is the group that nobody can do anything with. And you get to know the students, and you get to know why they're in the room, and you get to know why they're stuck with this one teacher who once upon a time was great at the beginning of his career. Everybody loved him. He loved his students. He was passionate about teaching until he became the scapegoat for a scandal of cheating on a test. And at that point, he just, he dialed it in for 25 years. And this is his last year before retirement. And he's been given this group because the administrator in the town has decided, or the administrator in the school has decided, if we can force him out, we don't have to pay retirement. If we can force this guy to quit. So you've got all this interplay with, you know, different dynamics. And one of the redeeming characters is the kid that caused the cheating scandal in the first place. That as an adult, he has an opportunity to redeem himself. And it's a lot about learning how people change. So it's, again, it's a really, really funny book, but it deals with very serious subjects. And I think it's a great way, if you've got those kids that are really difficult, that they don't think their lives are ever going to change, I'm always going to be the bad kid. This might be an interesting book to suggest to them, to see that, you know, you aren't just who you are now. Your life is going to change. You will someday be an adult, and you might be very different.
The next book is Dragon Pearl. And you'll see, the, I, I didn't read as many books as Heather, but the number of the books, <laughs> she's a very avid reader. Um, but the number of the books that I read, not on purpose, have this very like spiritual world, ghost element. Um, so as I talk about those different books, it's kind of weird because that seems to be kind of a theme of the books that I read and it was very unintentional. Um, so this one is, I didn't know what that meant when I picked it up, but it's called a Rick Riordan Presents book. And so I had to kind of figure what, out what that was. And, you know, a lot of students at school are really into Percy Jackson and all the other series is related to that. And so they've capitalized upon that, um, those publishers, and they've created a whole new, like, kind of series called Rick Riordan Presents, which are other authors focused on mythology of different cultures and kind of creating fantasy stories in those other cultures that Rick Riordan hasn't necessarily explored yet. So this story focuses on Korean mythology and kind of incorporates that Korean mythology into a sci-fi fantasy. So there's, it's kind of a, you gotta follow that. Um, so as I was reading it, I, I have a friend who is Korean and I knew some of the background of some of that Korean mythology, so I kind of recognized at moments where um, the author was weaving that in. She, she's not at all overt about, like, this is Korean mythology. You kind of have to know that the author is Korean or read that um, author's note to understand that concept. So I think from a kid perspective, it might more be seen as a sci-fi fantasy. Um, but it weaves in different, like, animal spirits and um, shape-shifting. And that, like, the main character is a fox who can uh, be shapeshift into being a human and there's also a dragon that can shapeshift into be a human and a something else a ghoul or something there's multiple different kind of types of characters who then try to fit into like the the human world and there's different planets that they go to and there's an intergalactic war happening so it is exciting stuff and really ultimately the the character whose name is Min, that's my worst thing is remembering characters' names. Min, um, she has an older brother who went to fight in the intergalactic war, and the news comes back to her parents in the first chapter that he deserted um, the fleet, and they don't know if he's dead, they don't know what happened to him, and she's just confident that he would never do that, that that's not his character, he would never be a deserter to the army, that something else must have happened, and she goes to find him and prove everybody wrong and prove that he's a courageous, honorable citizen and all those things. So she kind of goes out on this adventure with that purpose in mind and makes a lot of blunders along the way um, and ends up um, living when someone else dies and taking on their body. So just follow me, right? Like, um, and the ghost of that character, like she creates herself because she can change shape to look like the dead boy um, and takes his spot on the ship. But then his character is a ghost and guides her in what to do. And then in the end she, you know, spoiler, but she does find her brother in his ghost form um, because he died. And then she has to decide what she's going to do with that and she has to find out the, the solution to the mystery. Did he desert? Did he not? Um, and it was, as a sci-fi, very fun to read. Um, I think as a Christian, there's always that tension, right? Even with like the Rick Riordan or the Percy Jackson, any of those of recognizing spiritual truth versus what's a fun fantasy story or a mythology story and how all those things connect to what I think um, as a believer. But I think from like the, just a very basic kid perspective, it was a little hard to follow of like all the different things and changing forms because that's the fantasy element. Um, but it was a lot of fun too. I felt like, for the most part, it was light and enjoyable and nothing really scary from that perspective. So, overall, I enjoyed it. Yes. Convoluted answer. <laughs> oh, I don't have Lost Girl. Um, the next one that I read was The Lost Girl. This is about uh, twin fifth graders. Those are the main characters, and there's, there's Lark, who's the dreamer, and Iris, who is the active go-getter um, the one who sort of represents the twins. And everything is fine as long as they're in the same grade, but in fifth grade, 
they discover that they are placed into separate classrooms. And this is just devastating to Iris and to Lark. But it seems like it becomes more and more devastating to Iris because she sees her job in life is to protect Lark from everybody else because Lark is a dreamer. And Lark starts to resent this where she realizes that maybe she's not growing up like she should because her sister is always stepping in and saving the day. But Iris doesn't see that either. She just sees that, you know, she's been turned away from her sister and people are trying to divide them. Now the, so it's a real, you know, it's a cute little coming of age story and they have to figure out how they're going to deal with how are we still going to be twin sisters with that special bond and yet at the same time individuals. And then there's the fantasy side of the story. There's often this third voice that talks directly to the reader. So it like it breaks that third wall and gives you like weird little hints that there's something going on in the town and there's some sort of supernatural problem. So it's, it's like trying to weave a coming of age story in with a fantasy and at the end, like the last third of the book, Lark gets captured by this weird guy in this antique shop and is about to be turned into some sort of doll. It, it gets almost creepy. So in a lot of ways, it just seemed like she's trying to mash two stories together. And I really didn't think it worked well. Now, that's my own personal opinion. I'm sure there are other people that would think very differently. But it just got weird. There were a lot of things where it was trying too hard to be mysterious. Like these things would, there were all these little things that got stolen by crows and these crows <coughs> were all over the place. But you never really know why. It's not like they drop clues for the characters. They do come to the rescue at the end, but you're again, sort of explained, but then it's sort of like, okay, we well, down to the last chapter, so I'm gonna quick tell you, the crow was the weird guy in the shop's sister, and he you know, did something horrible to her, and that's the end of the story. At the end. So, I know she's written other books, but I don't think this was her best one. Um, much, much better was The Bridge Home. Thank you. Um, VG is the main character, and she has an older sister who is disabled. And they flee their father and their mother because their father is abusive. It takes place in India. And um, she and her sister run away because they figure, VG figures, it's better for them to try and make a life for themselves without their parents than it is to stay home and know that they're both going to be abused. And they do take, I mean, she takes matters into her own hands. And it's an interesting story because it's about trying to survive, but also trying to make a better life for yourself. And they, they meet up with two other homeless boys who have been managing to survive on the street by themselves for a long time. Um, the author is from India. She has personally worked with street children. She interviewed a bunch of street children for those stories, and she said she, she wove those stories together into this. Um, in many ways, it's a really, knowing that sex trafficking happens is not part of this book at all. Okay, so the, these kids have a difficult life, but it's not a scary life. There are people that are chasing them down more in a territory war, like this is where we get our stuff, so you gotta go somewhere else. Um, there's nothing really terribly scary like sex trafficking that happens in this. So my, my fifth grade daughter picked this up and read it before I did, and she said, Mom, this, this book is terrible. It's really scary, and I'm thinking, oh no, what has she seen? And she's like, the dad beats them. I'm like, oh, yeah, that, that's a terrible thing. And they run away, but they're okay in the end. Well, the one daughter is. The other one dies. I'm like, oh, so how does that all go down? So it's, it's eye-opening. This is a great book for younger ages, for kids to realize that they've got a lot to be thankful for. You know, you, you have parents that love you. They might make you make it, your bed, but they, they care for you. Um, one of the things that I really loved about it is um, the Christians in the book are portrayed very, very well for the characters that you actually meet. Like 
Vigi ends up finally trusting a nun at a church to help her and to help her with her sister. And the nun lives up to all of the, the promises that she's made. Um, one of the two boys had, had, had been telling Vigi she couldn't go to the church and couldn't trust the people because he had been placed in a Christian orphanage where he was basically in a sweatshop. So his experience with Christian organizations was very different. So it was, it was good to see that sometimes what we think is happening overseas with Christian organizations is really not on the up and up. But on the other hand, there are Christian organizations that do absolutely everything they can to live up to the love of Christ. I really liked it. And, you know, um, yeah, one of the other characters professes to be a Christian himself. So it's, it's, a, it's a really good conversation starter for um, faith questions. All right, the next book is Far Away. And when I started reading this book, I, just from the beginning of the book, I assumed that there was some spiritual element to it that might maybe like almost in a fantasy way that the author was trying to describe like that as a, as a real thing. Like as I was reading it, I was thinking like she's heading toward that end. Um, and throughout the book, the, the main character is, CJ, um, she's 12, her mom died when she was born, and her aunt is like a spiritual medium, can talk to spirits, and so she, her aunt is like in front of these large audiences, and goes and like meets people in the audience, and then is like the medium connecting with their loved ones, and so she has this whole like circuit tour of traveling, and when she's at home with her aunt, CJ, um, her aunt's the one traveling, CJ talks to her mom through her aunt and kind of, you know, they, they have this relationship, she and her mom, because her aunt's the medium. Well, as the story goes on, everyone is questioning whether her aunt is telling the truth, except for CJ. And she has this deep belief that her aunt is really a medium and really telling the truth and really connecting with all these spirits. But the other people in the story are asking questions. The other people in their set crew um, and outside person who's kind of investigating her and so as the story goes on CJ starts to like say is this really true is there really a spiritual world is there not and she actually gets um, finds out that her aunt's lying completely her aunt's not a medium not connecting with her mom and she finds out that her aunt's not connecting with her mom when she actually runs into her mom on accident at a zoo and like realize like that's my mom that's the picture I know that's who that is and she confronts her and and her mom is like oh yeah hi CJ like she's like well, how did how have you been a secret my whole life why would you do that to me and so she actually wants to get to know her mom and hates her aunt then right because she feels like her aunt's the one lying to her when they both were but you know this this whole process and so as an, as a Christian and as an adult right I'm reading this and I kind of had some high hopes for like good spiritual conversations with kids over a book like this, and really the book ends with like, yeah, there probably isn't a spiritual world at all. When someone dies, they die, and it's over. And I was like, oh, like, that's so sad to me. Um, because I do believe there's a spiritual world, and I do believe that there are really specific things that happen when a person dies, and I believe in God, and so for a child to read that whole book and like end with, like, yeah, that, none of that's true. I was like, okay. Um, so my encouragement to you, if you see a child reading the book far away, or um, is is to like actually engage them in a conversation about that. Like, why would the author kind of take that line, and how does that compare with what we believe as Christians? And um, you know, I I think there are kids out there, people who grow up in the faith, and then come to the similar conclusion as an adult. Like, all that was fake, and kind of like Santa Claus, right? Like, people told me this thing, but in reality, that's not true. And so I don't want kids to have that as a model for what they think about what we talk about as a Christian community and Christian schools. Um, and I just, I think, it asks good questions, right? Like I was asking good questions as a reader and wondering and thinking, but I would encourage you to have good conversations with your kids over a book like this. Twins kept popping up in some of my books. 
Um, even Town uh, is also about a set of twins, and again, there's one twin that's the speaking member of the, the duo. And at the beginning, there's some, you know that there's something wrong in the family, that something in their life has changed, and everybody in the family is very sad. But they're about to move. They're going to move to a place called Eventown. Eventown is perfect. And when they move there, the twin Elodie realizes her family is laughing for the first time in over a year. They're having fun together in the first time over a year. She goes to school and she's welcomed in as a new person for the first time in over a year. But as the story continues, she starts to realize that her parents don't seem to remember anything before. I mean, they remember that they had jobs and, you know, they used to live somewhere else, but it seems like they're losing something. And then she starts to notice more perfection. There's only three perfect flavors of ice cream. Just three. They always play exactly the same song in music class, perfectly, every single time. There is one gymnastics routine that everybody does perfectly. You can kind of see where this is going, right? So it's, it's that, it's a, a different take on the, what do you give up for perfection? What do you give up to avoid sadness? And what they have given up when they are first welcomed into the town is their memories. They give up, you go to the library, all of the books are, are on the shelf, but the pages are blank. Why would you want to know about tragedy? Because tragedy makes you sad. And Elodie begins, you know, there, there are hints dropped throughout that something tragic happened in the family. So the spoiler alert is this. Their older brother committed suicide. He had a long bout with depression, and they, they tried and tried and tried to help him, and he ended up committing suicide when he was about 16. So that's what the family is, is struggling with. That's what their community back home was struggling with. That's why the girls felt left out at school. It's like, how do you talk to your classmate whose older brother committed suicide? Um, what's, what's saddening is there's, there's no mention of help other than the solution is you have to talk about these things. Well, that, that's good. It's better to talk about these things than to not. But as Christians, <coughs> there's got to be more to those conversations than just, yeah, you have them and you talk about it. Um, just on a side note, uh, one of the sadness details from another family was one of the characters has two moms. It's not a big deal. They're given two names. They show up, I think, like three times. But it's, it's just one of those things to be aware of in the story. The next one was recommended to me by the librarian at school. Oh, you did too? Oh, that's cool. The Night Diary. Um, this is historical fiction, and it is about the partition of India and Pakistan in 1947, which, you know, you know, probably heard about, you know, it happened, you can see it on the map. But this is like a first-person account from, again, a twin, but this time it's a twin boy and a twin girl. The, the girl writes the diary. The boy is the artist, the girl is very quiet, very reserved, but she writes. And their mother died. Now, the, the, the conflict in the story is their father is Hindu, their mother was Muslim. So they didn't belong in either world. They were living in what became Pakistan. So as a Hindu family in Pakistan, they had to flee to the Hindu territories of India. At the same time, as on the other side of India, there were millions of people fleeing India to try and get into Pakistan. Um, there are some, there's some very frightening stories that happened. At one point, the girl is grabbed by a total stranger who has lost his whole family, and he threatens to kill her. And it's, it's a huge, it, it's a very dramatic book. It's, I think it's a great book for sixth grade and up, and it's, you know, if you have students that like history, this is a, a great, great um, addition to the library. Oops, there's that one. Oh, and it won the Newbery last year, Newbery Honor. So this is just a little older, sorry. Um, the next story is called Louisiana's Way Home, and Louisiana is the girl's name, and she's kind of an endearing, younger character. I thought there was a lot of it was a book that could be read by a younger student, like even third or fourth grade.
grade, but some of the things that she's dealing with and some of the words and things I thought were, were still very like middle school appropriate. Um, one of the terms that she uses is the curse of sundering. And so they, that takes a little while, like it's not explained right away, and you're like, for a little while in the book, you're like, what is this thing? You have to kind of like hold on. And the whole story is that she's with her grandma, and it starts very crazy. Um, her grandma has a toothache and can't drive, and so she's trying to like drive her grandma to the dentist, and she's 10, right? So like she's driving down the road, and they go to the dentist, and her grandma's threatening the dentist to work on her or else, you know, those sorts of things. And so she gets all, the grandma gets all drugged up and things. And so then, like, this little Louisiana has to take grandma to a hotel because they can't go back home, and they're, they're kind of homeless. And so some of the things in the story are, like, serious things, but there's enough silly, funny, like, things from her perspective that makes you just laugh along the way, even though it's kind of a serious situation. And at the hotel, she meets another, a boy there, and he, you know, typically, like, his routine is to steal out of the vending machine to get a snack. So then you got that whole dynamic of, like, <laughs> him stealing out of vending machines and climbing to the top of this tall tower, and the hotel concierge is constantly coming out, like, shooing him away and get out of here, and so now she's really intrigued by him because, you know, that's, you're not supposed to do that. And so she follows him home and meets his family, and kind of gets involved in their lives and all the crazy things that are happening. And really, it kind of comes down to she doesn't know where home is. She doesn't have a home. She's just kind of out traveling with Grandma. And Grandma kind of keeps her close by threatening her with the curse of their family past. And the, the something like the great-grandparents were magicians, and they got cut into the sundering. Right? And they couldn't get put back together again. The, the magic went wrong and the magician's thing. And like, what? <laughs> Silly. Funny. Um, and in the end, she realizes that her grandma's not her real grandma. This whole thing has been made up. These stories are not real. Her grandma like adopted her so that she didn't go into foster care. But now she's with the grandma who's crazy and not at all providing food or shelter or anything for her. Um, and so it's just like, whoa. So that's why I say, like, it could be, like, for younger kids, I think they wouldn't, it doesn't go deep into, like, they would just kind of follow the storyline, like, oh, good, in the end, they're all friends, sort of, like, it kind of ends with this, like, she needs to find a new home, and the new home, they end up settling, like, in that place and getting help for grandma, and she ends up, like, being helped by this family, kind of adopted almost by the family, even though she gets to live with grandma. It's kind of this kind of all wraps up nicely, but on the deeper level, there's a lot of, like, hard stuff that she goes through as a kid that I think an older kid might recognize, like, that's not okay. Like, that shouldn't happen to a real kid in, in real life that wouldn't maybe turn out as well. And so, it was funny and cute and also kind of disturbing. <laughs> All right. Uh, Genesis Begins Again is a debut novel by Alicia Williams, and boy, I hope she writes more. Um, Genesis is a young girl in Detroit, and her family has been evicted several times recently. So she's been to many different schools, and her dad has apparently a drinking problem. Mom and dad are married, they're still together, they're trying to work it out, but dad makes lots of promises that he never keeps. He's also got a gambling problem. So they, you know, they're evicted once again, and the next place that dad gets for them is in Farmington Hills. Now, you know, if you're from the Detroit area, the difference between Detroit and Farmington Hills is, you know, Detroit urban and really wealthy suburb. And she finds herself in this new school where the first thing she notices is there's no metal detector. There are no police. That when an adult walks down the hall, the kids either greet them, you know, there's a lot of eye contact. She's like, this is a weird place. Now, the underlying conflict in this story is Genesis is convinced that part of the reason her dad has so many problems, part of the reason that he doesn't love her as much as he should is because she has the same dark skin that he has. If, he was, if she was lighter skinned like her mother, then everything would be better. Her grandma would love her more, her dad would have more respect. So it's, it's a really interesting book in terms of 
racial history. And it's, it's the, I, the author does a great job. Um, I think my only, my only caution would be if this was read without any understanding by a young kid. This was a great book, I think. I mean, it's young enough you could get a sixth grader to read it if they're ready for that conversation. Because Genesis does some pretty horrible stuff to try and bleach her own skin. Like, literally uses bleach. You know, she, she comes to school all scabby because she tries to scrub off the darkness. You know, she's, she's convinced that this is the problem. And so a lot of it is learning how to appreciate who you are and that that is way more, and I mean, we always talk about beauty is not more than skin deep. That she, I mean, her huge gift is she has a fabulous singing voice. But because she's so ashamed of how she looks, she won't ever use that. But in her new school, she's suddenly allowed to. There are enough other differences, there are enough other people that say, you know, you can do this. She receives enough encouragement that she starts to realize that maybe she doesn't need the encouragement from her family. Maybe she can do these things and she has value and worth. And there's a, you know, the, the, it doesn't end with like, and her dad comes back and everything's happy. Her dad says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to quit making promises. I'm going to actually do something. So you won't see me for a little while until I get my life together, but I will be back. So there's a lot of hope going forward in this one. All right, our school has Spanish immersion programs, so the last couple of years I've been deliberately trying to find books that have been translated into English from the original Spanish, because I strongly believe that everything's better in the original. You lose something in translation, whether it's the language or the flow of the story, or just even cultural terms get, you know, idioms are just terrible to try and, and translate. Um, I Lived on Butterfly Hill is a beautiful book. It's kind of slow. This is not action-packed, though it does have some very, very intense moments. It's basically a... It takes place in Chile, and it's set as if uh, Pinochet was about to take over Chile, you know, with a military coup, and then um, coming down on anybody that was seen as a subversive. So her parents are doctors that run a, a free clinic, and so they eventually have to go into hiding. One of the major themes of this book is how do you deal with being in exile? How do you live with being away from your home? Knowing that it's not safe to go back to your home, how do you make a new life? And then what do you do when you do get to go back? Because then, in a sense, you're sort of in exile from two places. You have two places to be homesick for. So it's, it's a beautiful book. I really, really enjoyed it. It's long, though, so. <clears throat> the next book I just finished last night, and I, to be honest, it was really good. Um, it's called Ghost Boys, and it is a book that goes back and forth in time. So there's a page that'll just say past, and then there's a chapter, and then it'll say present, and there's a chapter. And so it kind of, it tries to help you as the reader know, are you in the past, are you in the present, are you kind of reading in the moment of what happened earlier in the story, or are you kind of in the, you know, in the current moment of all that has come through. So pretty early in the story, like I think the first or second chapter, um, Jerome, you find out that he has died. So that kind of, you know, you start almost at the end of the story and then you have to kind of go back and hear how that happened. And he is um, a boy, middle schooler, going to school in um, a local school in Chicago in an urban setting. And he, kind of the, the narrative of the story is that, um, and it's not told in this order at all when you read the book, right? You're going back and forth, so you kind of have to follow. And as a kid, I think it would be somewhat hard to follow at moments, but it kept me interested. Um, but really, the narrative of it is he is being bullied by some of the boys in his school. And so at lunch, he skips lunch and he hides in a stall in the bathroom every day. And his grandma and his mom and his dad and his younger sister are all very worried about him because he, he's just a kid. 
and he's just having a lot of trouble, he's having a hard time, but there's not much they can do about it, and so he kind of handles and copes the way he can. Um, these bullies, when they do find him, beat him up, and it's a big struggle. And one day a new student comes to school, um, and he doesn't want a friend because friends attract attention, and he's not real interested in attracting any attention, so he kind of ignores the kid. Um, but then the kid kind of really wants to be a friend, and so pursues him, and they both end up in the stalls in the bathroom together because he's going to the bathroom and the kids comes in and he sees the bullies come around the corner. He's like, ah, hurry up, hide. And so he helps the kid hide and they form a friendship in the bathroom stalls, hiding from the bullies. And the next, within very soon within the story, they're together and they're starting to be friends. And the next time they're in the bathroom together, the friend brings a toy gun. And when the bullies come in, instead of just hiding, the friend hops out of the bathroom stall and points the gun at them and they assume it's real and so they go running away and there's a sense of power that he has taken care of the situation and they can do anything and after school he gives the gun to Jerome and Jerome doesn't want it and doesn't want to take it and like no my family wouldn't want me to do that that's not how we do things but the friend insists and so he walks home with it and he's he's on the way home and he is just playing with it as a toy gun like any kid might, you know, and kind of hiding and ducking around corners and laughing, and the next thing he knows, a police car comes around the corner and shoots him in the back, and he dies. And so, soon after that, uh, there's a whole investigation from the police end, and in the end, the police officer is not convicted, and that's really frustrating, right, to the, the community and to his family, and uh, the friend doesn't tell that he was the one that gave him the gun. It's kind of the secret, but he, the friend, continues to be a friend to his sister and to take care of, you know, kind of support their family and kind of not, not take Jerome's place, but kind of be a support system. Um, all the while, Jerome is a ghost. And he sees the whole story unfolding as a ghost. And the only person who can see him, his grandma can feel him, and knows he's there and talks out loud to him. Um, but but that's she can see him, and then the daughter of the police officer can actually see him. And so the daughter of the police officer, um, she's the same age as Jerome. They live in very different places, have very in, in Chicago, but very different life experiences. And she starts to research what happened to Jerome and what happened to her dad and why her dad shot him. And she realizes as a little girl, and kind of Jerome's talking to her as a ghost that her dad did the wrong thing. Like, she, if she was in the trial and was the judge, she would have convicted him and sent him to jail. And she's very angry with her dad. Like, why didn't he do anything to figure out if this was a child, if it was an adult, if it was a real gun, if it was a fake gun? She just doesn't understand why her dad would have made that decision to shoot him. And they, these ghost boys, it's more than just Jerome, there are a whole city full of ghost boys who, um, who see their job as helping bring peace. But Jerome doesn't understand that at first because he's angry. And Sarah, the friend he's made through this process, is angry. Um, and there's a boy named Emmett Till, uh, which is a historical person who um, was murdered unjustly in the South. And he is part of the story and ends up telling his story um, so it's got a historic element to it, to Jerome. And in the end, there, there's a reconciliation between Jerome and Sarah, and Sarah is kind of on a personal journey to bring awareness, to bring knowledge, to bring peace through reconciliation, but to also make known the injustices and um, to try to make change. And so I, I, I thought it was a really interesting perspective, and I thought the ghost aspect of that in this situation worked really well. Um, it, didn't, it wasn't really a question about like spiritual things, if that makes sense. The, the purpose of the ghost had a very specific purpose in terms of Sarah kind of learning and growing and coming to reconciliation, even with her dad in that situation. So I liked it a lot, and as I read the end, um, Jewel Parker Rhodes, the author, um, her, one of her main goals in writing is, um, I think, I don't remember if she won the Credit Scott King Award, or she was a contender for it, or... She wrote Towers Falling. 
Yes, she did. Which were reviewed last year. Yeah, okay. But there was something about Coretta Scott King Award maybe being yeah. a contender for that, potentially. Um, but she, her goal in writing this is a lot about education, a lot about encouraging students to talk to each other, encouraging teachers to buy the whole book set and do it as class novels. So, um, yeah. Now we can get sketches, right? Yeah. <laughs> I wish we could. We're working on that. All right. Um, the next four. Yes. I just want to let you know there's about ten minutes. Yeah, that's why I was just about to say I'm going to buzz through these next few. Um, these these are books that I ran across and ended up reading, but I think they're more for older readers. Uh, Voices is a book in verse. It's about Joan of Arc. Uh, interesting thing, if you if you like literature, it's actually written in different medieval poetic forms. My only thing I didn't like is it, it comes off sounding too much as Joan's main reason for doing this thing was not for listening to the voice of God, but because she was not happy being a woman in medieval France. That's just <laughs> how it sounded to me. Uh, Rainy and, sorry, Rain and Delilah's Midnight Matinee was also reviewed in the banner. That's part of the reason I picked this up. I alternately loved it and it made my toes curl. There were times that it was a beautiful, beautiful book and has a lot to say about we live in a culture where you've got to be the best, and not everybody is. And is there anything wrong with being good? And they're, they're, they're in the um, midnight horror cheesy matinee thing, which is not great TV. But is it good? Is what she's doing worth it? Because um, one of the character's main goals is to try and get famous enough on this midnight matinee that maybe her dad will see her and will finally come back and say why he left them in the first place. Deals a lot with issues of uh, depression and mental health and um, how do you, how are you friends with someone and what do you do when you graduate and you go different ways? Is every ending just an ending or is it really the beginning of something new? So. Um, the parts that just made my toes curl were when they were like high school girls and text messaging back and forth and there's like the whole romantic dilemma with this young man and there's some parts where I'm like, oh this is such a great book and there are other parts where I'm like, oh this is just cheesy you know, high school romance. Kind of take the good with the bad. Um, there is some swearing, especially when they're texting, so just I would say high school, this is a great book. Middle, you know, high school and up, I wouldn't put it in a middle school library. The Weight of Our Sky is historical fiction. It takes place in 1967 in Malaysia, following the general elections when the ruling coalition suddenly lost power and there was a lot of rioting. And the official count was somewhere in the you know, low hundreds of how many people died between the ethnic Malays and the Chinese, the actual totals were probably in the thousands. Um, one of the things that I found very intriguing in this book is one of the characters who rescues this girl, um, who's a Malay Muslim, the main character is, um, her name is Malati, uh, she is a Christian. And that's her reason. She's a Christian Chinese woman, and that's her reason for saving this girl. She's like, this is what I, this is what I'm called to do. And Melody struggles with OCD, but because it's the 1960s and she's Malay and she's Muslim, there are so many stigmas atta attached to this that it is more socially acceptable for her to believe she is possessed by a jinn than that she really has a mental issue. And it's a great read. There is some swearing, but most of the bad language is actually attached to American movie posters, which I found very interesting. What did we send to other countries to say this is who we are? Um, the Patron Saint of Nothing takes place in the Philippines. This is a modern story. It's coming of age. And this is all about trying to come to grips with who people really are. Um, Jay is, a, is the main character. He's just about to graduate from high school. His family left the Philippines and they live in the United States. His mother was an American. So he's lived his entire life in um, the Ann Arbor area. He's about to go to Michigan U of M. He's all set. He's going to you know, live his nice little life. But he finds out that his really good friend, his close cousin, um, was shot and killed in, back in the Philippines. And he's just, he's devastated. 
partly because of the guilt that he stopped writing back to this cousin. And so he goes on this personal quest to find out, well, what really happened? And, um, you know, the, the, the current president of the Philippines is Duterte. That's referenced frequently. And his strategy for a war on drugs is basically, we're going to turn a blind eye if there's drug use and the person dies, great, one less drug user we have to deal with. If you're a dealer, even better. So he, you know, Jay is convinced that his cousin was wrongly killed, especially because the cousin's father is chief of police in their town. So he finds, he finds out a lot of good things about his cousin, but he also finds out that his uncle is not an evil bad guy who got his son murdered. He also discovers that his cousin is not as innocent as he wishes he were. Oh, sorry. Wait a bar, Sky. Uh, then we've got the sequels. <laughs> These will be really quick. Uh, last year, Kiran Mala and the Kingdom Beyond. This is the second one, Game of Stars. It's Hindu mythology slash fantasy slash other worlds. It's a fun read. The interesting thing as a Christian is, you know, Hinduism is a living, breathing religion. I don't know if it's always a good thing to make it the focus of, you know, a fantasy novel. But it's a great adventure story. Um, I honestly did not read Endling the second. I read the first one. My daughter read this. She's like, oh, Mom, you have to review it again. This is the second part, following the continuing saga of Bix and the other animals that may be nearing the brink of extinction. How do they band together? What do you do if you're the last one of your kind? Um, Avi wrote part two of The Unexpected Life of Oliver Cromwell Pitts, uh, The End of the World and Beyond. Poor Oliver has fallen in with bad guys in his quest to try and find his sister Charity in England and gets himself sentenced to transportation to the colonies. Yeah, it's one of the probably lesser known and less lesser focused on aspects of United States history. We were a penal colony in some of the colonies. So how does he deal with that? What were the conditions? Um, Avi always frequently writes from first-person narrative. This is written sort of as a diary. If you ever had to read Tom Jones, you know, where the, it's introduced to each chapter, it's like this is about what's going to happen, it kind of has that flavor. I don't know, it's a weird literary illusion, but there it is. <laughs> Knights versus monsters and knights versus dinosaurs. This is the first one. Crazy mashup of King Arthur's courts and dinosaurs. Monsters. You know, because you know, when all the knights are sitting around at King Arthur's castle and they're talking about their adventures, you know, sooner or later they start trying to story top each other, and eventually one of them stands up and says, I fought 40 dragons. Haha. -ha. And Merlin looks at him and goes, Boy, have I got the quest for you. And as they're going along, you know, they bring one squire, and the poor squire is told at one point when someone gets injured, Hey, you gotta, you know, use your undergarment to help bind this wound. She says, No. And sorry, I slipped up, there's the pronoun, because the squire is a girl. And so this is my favorite line in the whole book. And Sir Boris the knight says, this is ridiculous. Are there any more girls here on this quest? And at that point, the black knight raises her hand, <laughs> who is by far the best and bravest knight that they've got there. It's, it's part graphic novel, part, part you know, regular story. Um, all my kids read them. It's a quick read. It's hysterical. All right, and like the first Knights and Monsters, nonfiction. One quick, yeah, okay. we're gonna run time. Yeah, we are. All right, so the, the time, we have about one minute. Um, so the last section is all the nonfiction, and so if you're somebody who's really interested in that, we've got a lot of the books up here to come and look at. Um, I read, it's Trevor Noah, Born a Crime, and it is, I read, it's about South African history, um, but I read the, the children's edition, or the Adapted for Young Readers edition, is what they call it. There is a full, edition for adults and I can only imagine what's in the adult one like <laughs> there's definitely things that I thought was fine for kids they, they he didn't mention anything that I would call wildly inappropriate but I can imagine where the story was going to go if he had been telling it for adults so there were some moments of like where he's talking about a place they went or a party they went to he doesn't mention anything that happened at the party other than what's pertinent to him talking about like being the one kid who didn't fit in any of the groups. He wasn't um, a black kid, he wasn't a white kid, and he wasn't a colored kid, because that was what the three groups were um, in the apartheid time frame. So he, he didn't fit because, um, you know, just his own life history was different. And part of it was born a crime because it was a crime for him 
to even be born um, and how that all happened. So, so he doesn't really go into all the details of that, but I think it's definitely middle school appropriate if you're looking at apartheid history, um, very personal perspective. So thanks so much for coming. We appreciate you.